This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, this is your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Thanks for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to get a new episode every Thursday. Today, we're marking a new chapter in the story of Marble Hill, an eye-catching early Georgian villa set in 66 acres of parkland near the River Thames in Twickenham in southwest London. As it reopens following an £8 million project to revive the house and grounds, we're going to explore the history of this riverside Palladian home, its builder, Henrietta Howard, its collections and its garden. And to do this, we're joined by three English heritage experts. Hi, I'm Megan Leyland. I'm Senior Properties Historian. Hello, I'm Tessa Kilgariff. I'm the Collections Curator for Marble Hill. Hi, I'm Emily Parker and I'm Landscape Advisor. Thank you all for coming on. Let's first describe Marble Hill. Emily, what sort of landscape does the house sit in? Today, the house is set within a public park, so it has a cricket, football and rugby pitches. And of course, now part of that park is the newly restored garden, which we'll talk about a bit later. It is a much loved local park and it's popular with dog walkers and local exercise groups as well as families. And where in, is the house in relation to the Thames? Is it quite close? Yeah, so very close. So the house itself sits a little way back from the Thames, but the lawns of the sort of garden and park all slope down towards the Thames. So you can get lovely views from the house of the Thames. Tessa, how would you describe the house's appearance and architecture? Henrietta's home is a Palladian style villa. So that's an architectural style that was inspired by the 16th century Italian architect Andrea Palladio. Palladio closely studied the remains of ancient Roman buildings and um, he wrote about his ideals in a book that he published called The Four Books of Architecture. This book and the first-hand experiences of visiting Italy that British tourists had on the Grand Tour fueled a really strong desire to introduce the classicism of ancient Rome to England in the early 18th century. So if you were describing it to someone who hasn't been cannot see it how would you describe the shape for example so it is a rectangular shaped building um, across three floors it's quite simple from the exterior um, although you do have some beautiful fluted columns on the front and then a pediment triangular shaped pediment atop the house quite simple and refined in its exterior decoration and symmetrical i guess with the arrangement of the windows yes very symmetrical very tall windows Georgian-looking yes. windows. Yes, definitely. Right. Okay. So a very handsome kind of property, and it's it's in it's in white, isn't it? Yes, it is in white. And that's an original colour. Yes, it's been repainted actually as part of the project to a historically accurate lead white colour. So it's a sort of a yellowish white, and from afar, it looks like the whole house could be cut from Portland stone. So, with all that sort of described, Megan, was this a rather coveted place to live at at the time? And were there similar properties along this stretch of the Thames that boaters might have admired? It would have been, and in building our home on, you know, the banks of the River Thames, Henrietta sort of really placed herself at the heart of a very interesting intellectual and cultural circle of people who sort of came to coalesce here in the 18th century. And all these people flocked to this area and gave this stretch of the River Thames a really distinctive character, almost classical characters. We've heard from Tessa's sort of the inspiration of Italian architecture and classical architecture, which came through. And they started populating the river with these wonderful, beautiful villas and their incredible landscapes which surrounded them. There's one author in the 1760, Henrietta Pye, who sort of described the place as one continued garden and how the inhabitants were interested in architecture. It was their chief delight. So you kind of get the sense of Henrietta really putting herself at the centre of a very interesting place to be in the 18th century. Yes, and sounding quite house proud, I suppose, in a way, and uh, garden proud. Oh, yes, Um, everyone was. And the, the you sort of made the point really clear, you know, people seeing it from boats. And you can imagine those people coming from central London down the river and seeing all these different homes of all these different interesting people as they sort of rode by. 
Okay, well, let's talk in more detail, Megan, about this woman, this Henrietta, Henrietta Howard, the lady behind Marble Hill. When was she born? And what was her early life like? Well, Henrietta Howard, later Countess of Suffolk, was born in 1689 to Sir Henry and Elizabeth Hobart, or Hubbard as it's pronounced. She spent her early childhood at the home of this noble family in their country house, the Grand Blickling Hall in Norfolk, with her seven siblings. And as you can kind of imagine, it offered quite a promising start. Yes, well, you say that, but I understand that she faced some difficulties growing up. What were those? Yes, she did. Um, Unfortunately, by the age of 12, both Henrietta's parents had died. So her father died in a duel and her mother to illness three years later. And actually, she also lost um, a number of her siblings after that. So she experienced some incredible loss at a really remarkably young age. And she sort of found herself as the eldest child in charge. The family estate was quite impoverished, actually, by this time. And things weren't going particularly well and from that promising start she was sort of left alone orphaned she went to live with sort of on a semi-permanent basis with relatives the earl of suffolk and his wife um, at gunnersbury house and there she met a man called charles howard who she married in 1706 and gunnersbury house i suppose in terms of relation uh, if it's its relationship to marble hill i suppose is on the yes. district line, effectively. One, I was going to say, it's one of the stops on the on the train if you're heading out to Marble Hill, Gunnersbury. So uh, not too far away then from her eventual home. No, exactly. OK. Did she have any other health problems as well? Yeah, not at quite that young age that we know of, but throughout her life, and we can read in her correspondence that she experienced quite poor health, rheumatism and headaches and various other ailments. And she also experienced hearing loss later in her life, in her late 20s, early 30s. And it's remarkable, as you'll hear, Henrietta became this fascinating figure in the royal court. And her hearing loss didn't seem to have stopped her becoming an incredibly tenacious woman who befriended many people there um, over time. What was the next then chapter in her life after this quite difficult start? She, She obviously found love. Yeah, love, maybe. <laughs> well, she obviously found a partner, shall we say. She did. Any any illusion of love that she might have had when she entered into the marriage was soon dissipated when Charles Howard showed his true character. So she married, she would have been about 16 at that time. And you can imagine after everything that had gone on in her life that perhaps she thought, right, this is a way for a stabler future. I might find some happiness again after everything that's happened but very sadly in reality it was um, a very abusive marriage and she later wrote how her husband had made marriage an instrument of cruelty and the accounts of her suffering that still survived today are actually really heartbreaking her husband Charles was described by one contemporary as wrong-headed ill-tempered obstinate drunken extravagant and brutal And that extravagance left the couple in poverty, constantly moving from lodgings to lodgings, which became increasingly small and mean, in fear of creditors, hungry, and for Henrietta, just in fear of her safety. And um, as Henrietta's friend, Philip Dorn of Stanhope, who we've spoken about before, Charles, um, in a previous podcast, wrote, thus they were married and thus they hated each other for the rest of their lives. So she's once again hit this incredible bump in the road. How long did she suffer with uh, this... Charles character? Well she remained with him for quite a long time so they married in 1706 and she finally separated from him in 1728 so it was a long hard marriage but it was one which had moments where they spent very little time together at points. I see we'll get on to that breakup obviously eventually but um, something does happen to help put her on a better path And that's obviously her own sort of ingenuity in a way. She sort of manages to parlay her difficulties into managing relationships with very senior figures in royal circles. Can you tell us a bit about that? That's exactly right. And you get a sense of Henrietta constantly trying to forge a better future for herself. She never gives in. She was incredibly determined, strong and resourceful. And as you say, had this incredible talent with people. And we've got this scene of her living in these dreadful lodgings, as she calls them, circumstances of horror. 
and she ends up being a central figure of the royal court and she does that through her sort of tenacity in trying to find um find a route she hid money from her husband and raised money to travel to hanover in in germany and why germany well that was the home of the family who would inherit the throne of england upon the death of the reigning monarch queen anne and her real charm and intellect won her favour there. So when in 1714, George Ludwig became the first Hanoverian king of Great Britain as King George I, she came back to England with the royal party and was given a position in the household of Caroline, Princess of Wales. And she began to cultivate this really fascinating circle of friends and acquaintances who were sort of captivated by her intellect, her wit, and importantly at court, they always admired her discretion and diplomacy. So what can you tell us about her relationship with this Prince of Wales? Yes, so she was in the household of the princess, um, but she did also have a relationship with Caroline's husband, George, the Prince of Wales, future George II. Soon after coming back to England, she became a mistress to the Prince of Wales. It was said that the prince passed every evening of his life three or four hours in Mrs Howard's lodgings. And I think we have to be quite careful when we think about what being a mistress to a royal actually was in the period. First of all, she's a mistress to a royal. (laughs) That's not just anybody. And at this time, the position of mistress was quite an established one in the courts of Europe and could indeed be a, a quite privileged and sought after one. For the prince, as the courtier Lord Harvey wrote, taking a mistress was seen really as a sort of necessary addition to his grandeur as much as, and I quote, an addition to his pleasures as a man. So she's sort of in this quite precarious situation as a servant in the household of Caroline and a mistress in the household of George the Prince and in this quite interesting position in terms of the hierarchy of the court. Yeah, very delicate, really, if you think about it. I mean, it's very hard for us to imagine something like that in today's sort of society, because if these things go on, they're very clandestine and you you don't really know about them. But here it's sort of of open politics, wasn't it? It is. But I think one of the reasons Henrietta was so successful in court and that we sort of touched upon is her discretion and diplomacy. And certainly for Caroline as the princess, that was probably (laughs) an attribute of her she quite admired, considering she was mistress to her husband. And Henrietta even acquired the name of the Swiss for her sort of neutrality and her ability to navigate all of these complicated relationships and hierarchies that she would have encountered in her day-to-day life there. Bearing in mind that she's having to provide company, shall we say, intellectual stimulation and potential relations with the Prince of Wales... Does Henrietta manage to stay married to the awful Charles uh, during this whole period of courting and working in the royal court? So she was married for, for quite a lot of her time at court and her husband, like her, had actually gained a position on coming back to England after being in Hanover. He was a groom of the bedchamber in the king's household, so George I's household. And actually for them, that in some ways panned out quite well because he was in King's household, she was in the prince and princess's household, and that household actually had a bit of a rift from about 1717, so in some ways it actually offered Henrietta a bit of protection. And how did she manage eventually to separate herself from him? Because uh, yeah. she, he, obviously he was quite an insufferable fellow. How did they split eventually? Thankfully she did manage to separate from him. He was a sort of nuisance all the way through court and on and off as well, so So again, we see here Henrietta's determination not to give in and also her desire for a better life, as well as her intelligence and kind of grasps on her rights or lack thereof within marriage. So while still at court, in 1728, Henrietta separated from Charles by a private deed. So this is not quite what we would consider a full divorce, but an agreement outside of the courts to get divorced at the time, you'd have to get it by Act of Parliament. So it could be quite public and quite scandalous. This took place outside of court and was often used by high status couples to live separate lives and you'd put in place documents with specific agreements about how that would work. So this was actually quite unusual at the time and there would have been a lot of pressure to stay in bad marriages in that period. And I think it really does show Henrietta's, again, drive to find a better life and also to forge some kind of independence away from her husband. 
What did this actual separation do for her financially? Because crucially, she needs financial independence as well as physical distance from this awful, odious husband. So how does she achieve that? Yeah, so it did it did offer her some financial independence. She Charles effectively was always after money. <laughs> I think it's clear there was very little affection in that relationship and that actually I think Henrietta even wrote how he was sort of used her for her money. And what the separation did is it kind of paid Charles off to a degree and meant that any income that she had became her own after that point. Very good. Okay, so this is where building a dream home, I suppose, comes into the equation and presumably some funds become available for her to put plans together to build Marble Hill on the edge of the River Thames. Yeah, so she actually started building Marble Hill prior to this separation. It was already underway. I like her thinking. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I know. She's already setting those foundations for a new future right away. She's She's got her ducks in a row, I think. She has. And the opportunity really arose from a gift from the Prince of Wales, which he made in 1723. This was a large settlement to Henrietta of stock in the South Sea Company and Bank of England, as well as jewellery, plate, furniture. And absolutely crucially, The wording of this gift stipulated that it was free from any interference or meddling from her husband. She was essentially being treated as a almost single woman when it came to this specific gift to her. And it also states that it's sort of the end intent and purposes for her to make some sort of provision for herself, for her own living. And it was put in a trust which protected it from her husband and it meant it was managed by trustees for Henrietta's benefit. And soon after that gift, unsurprisingly, that's when Henrietta started building Marble Hill. And that would have been really quite a strident step away from her husband. Very bold at the time as a married woman to be building a home completely independent of your husband. So what was her vision like for Marble Hill? Who were the architects brought on to design this place for her new life? Well, unfortunately, Henrietta didn't quite write down exactly what she wanted to build build with instructions. But I think all the evidence suggests that she certainly would have had a view on what she wanted Marble Hill to be. There's quite a lot of evidence that she was a well-informed patron and took an active interest in elements of the houses and gardens creation. And, you know, it's not surprising. She no doubt developed a more than competent understanding of architecture and design at court through her social circle from hints and glimpses in the various surviving documents we know she looked at plans she met on site about the gardens she subscribed to architectural publications and her correspondence suggests that she was a source of knowledge about design among her social circle and there are some absolutely lovely letters to and from Henrietta which survive and one from a fellow courtier Mary Campbell in August 1724 writes How does my good Howard do? Methinks I long to hear from you. But I suppose you are up to the ears and bricks and mortar and talk of freeze and cornice. So you (laughs) get the idea that she's, you know, she's got a grasp of this sort of language of architecture and garden design at the time. And as we've heard, what she built was this incredible Palladian home, this fashionable villa, a rural retreat for sort of city dwellers inspired by the ancient past and gardens at the forefront of design ideas, really marking her out as a woman of great taste and learning. And I think another place where we see Henrietta is her ability to draw together all these very influential people of the time and renowned designers to create this home. And it was very common in the period that you draw upon a number of different people when building your home. So a number of friends and acquaintances, or indeed more professional hands to put it together. So at Marble Hill, we have the architect Earl Henry Herbert, 9th Earl of Pembroke, who we see paid bills and is identified by several contemporaries as the architecture. And bills and receipts also testify to Roger Morris, the builder come architect doing the building, and he was likely to have engaged in matters of design as well. And among the leading protagonists in the garden was the writer and Henrietta's neighbour, Alexander Pope, and the future gardener to the royals, Charles Bridgman. So she's really bringing together all the latest sort of fashionable ideas of the time and some of the greatest thinkers in design of the time. How long did all this planning take then? And also to build the property itself? We've got sort of the first indications of things happening in 1723 when 
Henrietta is writing how she's got plans that she doesn't want her friend who discovered them in her lodgings at Richmond Lodge to talk about. She's just keeping it a bit undercover for the initial time. And she says they're almost entirely finished to my satisfaction. And we know that a sort of contract was made with the builder in 1724 and that she was meeting on site with Alexander Pope and Charles Bridgman to think about the gardens that same year. So things are happening quite quickly after this gift from the king. And actually, as early as September 1724, Alexander Pope's writing, the house waits only for its roof. But actually, things always <laughs> shop and change and start and stop, don't they, in, in the land of building and circumstances come into play. So it's not actually until 1729 that the final receipt from the builder comes through for finishing all works done at her house at Marble Hill in Twittenham. And of course, her house would have continued to develop and evolve over time as she did the interiors and the landscape as well. So I think it's it started quite rapidly and it would have been sort of a lifelong passion in many ways to keep the house evolving and the gardens too. Yes, and I think anyone who's moved house or is of house buying age or they will know that it's an ongoing thing, isn't it? When you're constantly living with something in your house and you constantly change it. So it's yes, never th- done, is it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. We sort of talking about six years then, would you say, just to f- finish the outside? properly the whole thing yeah about six years somewhere somewhere around there yeah and was she still at court while building marble hill or had she, she been released from her job no at that point? she was still at court so she started building as we've heard you know that contract in 1724 is when bricks are starting to go down probably and it would actually be another 10 years after construction began before she had retired from court in 1734 before she was really able to fully enjoy marble hill so just like those people on Grand Designs, you know, there's always somebody trying to juggle work and the building project. So I think people can understand why it did take Henrietta so long. After everything we've heard about Henrietta's life before Marble Hill, what do you think it meant to her eventually to have this home in her grasp? I think that's such an important question because I think without, you know, what we've heard about what happened before, we, we can't really fully appreciate the meaning of Marble Hill, you know, we know it's it's significant in terms of its architecture and garden, but it's also significant in her life story and that biography that we've been hearing. And it must have just been an incredible relief and so exciting to have a home she could finally call her own after all that uncertainty, you know, going from lodging to lodging with her first husband, then being sort of taken around as part of the royal household it must have felt like thank goodness perhaps I've got at least a little bit of stability some independence and also an opportunity perhaps to be herself a bit more to entertain the people she wanted to entertain to have a bit of time for rest we've heard she wasn't always in the best health I think she really hoped that being at Marble Hill would improve it and and also happiness so it must have been such a big moment to her. First of all, the constructing of Marble Hill, and then when she finally got to really spend time there. I expect it was very satisfying for her. How did she use her home then? Because obviously, at this point, she is on her own. Yeah, so as we sort of heard, it it would have been quite a retreat in the first instance, that ability to get away from London, from that other life. But it wasn't cut off from the rest of the world. Her retirement from court didn't mark her retirement from society altogether. And it would have been a place to entertain society, friends and family, both in and outside of doors. And it also became a family home as well. So there were places for intimate conversation over tea, for grand dining, for reading, walking, entertaining. In 1735, Alexander Pope wrote, there is a greater court now at Marble Hill than at Kensington, so that's the home of the royals. And God knows where it will end. I'd love to have been there. And, you know, she also had friends and acquaintances nearby. So you can imagine everyone calling in at each other's houses. So Alexander Pope wasn't nearby. She had a lifelong friend, the Duchess of Queensbury, over the way. The Duke of Argyll was not too far inland, met Witten. So you can imagine people coming back and forth. And her correspondence gives you an idea of that witty intellectual conversation, which must have found a place at Marble Hill when she lived there. We've heard how she had this great ability to befriend people and she knew some of the greatest poets, politicians, courtiers and cultural commentators of the age. And she had such a far-ranging range of interests, garden design and architecture, poetry, literature, collecting porcelain, which would become a big feature in her home, and sort of in and outs of Georgian politics and society. So 
you can really begin to imagine what it was like there. But as you identified, it was only a home for sort of a single woman very briefly. She actually remarried. So it became a family home. So no longer mistress to George II. She was actually widowed in 1733 when her husband died. She remarried in 1735. And thank goodness this marriage went well. She Mm. really deserved a break. (laughs) She married the MP, George Barclay. And again, Henrietta was such a prolific letter writer that we can get a real sense of, or some sense of her and her life from those. And their letters are just a delight to read (laughs) after everything else that you read before it. And when George was away, he wrote, I miss you even more than I thought I would. I can't express it stronger. And her niece and nephew came to live with her. And then her great niece came to live with her. So you'd have had this incredible atmosphere of intellects and politicians and sort of these cultural people. And then also children (laughs) running around being children and family life that took place there. So it would have been this incredible, almost second existence after that early life and those court years and you get to Marble Hill. And I think at Marble Hill, we really finally perhaps get a little bit of a sense of Henrietta herself. How long did she live at Marble Hill then in the end? So if we take it from after leaving court, she had over three decades there. She died there in 1767. So thankfully, she did get a reasonable amount of time to enjoy the home she'd worked so hard and fought so hard for. Well, let's bring in Tessa now, who's curator of collections and interiors, to talk about the kind of home that Marble Hill was for Henrietta Howard during her life. Firstly, Tessa, how many rooms does it have? Uh, You've mentioned the number of floors, which I believe was three, wasn't it? Yes, so three floors and there are about 15 principal rooms um, arranged across those floors. So I suppose visitors would have likely entered via a room called, which we simply call the hall, but is sometimes known as the tetrastyle hall, the tetrastyle meaning four, because the room has four classically inspired columns. And then off that room, you have your breakfast parlour, your dining parlour, then you head up some stairs, a grand mahogany staircase, and you come to the main floor, the piano nobile, and the most impressive room in the house, which is appropriately known as the great room. And then turning out of there, you have the dressing room. And also on this floor, you have Henrietta's own bedchamber and two further bedchambers used by her niece and later her great niece. And also possibly one of the bedrooms might have been used by her second husband. And then finally, up on the kind of third story um, of the house, you have a gallery lined with paintings and then some more guest bedrooms. And of course, I should actually say that there are four floors because there's also the garret story where the servants would have slept and there were actually eight garret rooms up there. And that's right at the top, I presume? Mm, yes, up in, the, up in the attic. Okay, so the main family living areas are across three levels. The servants are right at the top. So the family have got a, a lot of space to bounce around in, effectively. Yes, I think it's a, it's a spacious, comfortable home. People often say when they come round Marble Hill, oh, I can imagine living here because there's something really <laughs> pleasing about it and its size. It's manageable, but still grand. Yes, I'm often saying that as well, actually. <laughs> so, yes, but you get that feeling when you go around some of these English heritage properties. You, they feel welcoming spaces, and which is nice. The interiors, though, for describing how they appear, are they, are they very tall ceilings? Yes, really grand ceilings. The tallest space would be the great room, which I mentioned before. So that's a double height space, 24 foot square. And then on top of the 24 foot cube, you have a coved ceiling. So it's really, really tall. You walk in there and it's a real kind of wow. And also because the room is so intricately decorated with carved ornament. And we know that Henrietta employed James Richards, who was the master carver in Wood to the King, to carve the great room with all sorts of motifs. There are eagles and cornucopias and even owls on the shutters, which I think are quite maybe a, a kind of a witty indication by Henrietta because the owl is a symbol of the goddess of wisdom, Minerva. So perhaps a kind of association between Henrietta, who's an intellect, and the owls on her shutters. Ah, Um, very interesting. That's the most impressive room. But there are other spaces that are much cosier and more domestic too. 
What about the um, appearance of the walls? Is it sort of wood panelling and this sort of thing? Or is it quite colourful? In the great room and actually throughout the house, it's mostly a very restrained paint colour scheme. One of the things we did during the project was microscopic paint analysis to understand what the original colour of the walls would have been. And we learned, for instance, that the great room, which had previously been gilded, we learned that that gilding was actually 1960s restoration and that originally the great room would have all been painted in a very muted stone colour, very kind of Palladian and classically inspired. But there is colour elsewhere. For example, in the dressing room, which is just next to the great room, we have actually reinstalled some crimson silk wall hangings. So it's a real riot of colour in there. Also matching silk damask festoon curtains, needlepoint furniture. It feels like a really rich, warm, inviting space. And you can imagine someone like Henrietta, who, as Megan has mentioned, had this really great talent for friendship, being right at home in this really inviting interior. Yes, well, this is the key thing, isn't it, really? She's a hostess um, Mm. with um, lots of interesting connections and interests and plenty of people to talk to about those. So in which rooms would Henrietta have conducted this personal business with the influential people of the time? Definitely the great room would have been her most impressive, entertaining space. It's the kind of place where she would have listened to music, played cards as well. We know that Henrietta had at least three card tables spread across her house. She was a great card player. And also the great room would have been a place for lively conversation. And we know that her neighbours, like Horace Walpole, could come and spend many hours by the fire with Henrietta in her great room. And he would get her to recount her kind of glory days in the court and court gossip of days gone by. Are there any paintings that some of these guests would catch sight of when they arrived that uh, would show off Henrietta's sort of status? Yes. So in the Great Room, there are five paintings all by the same artist called Panini. And these are imagined views of Rome. We sometimes call these capriccios because they are kind of made up imaginary scenes where you get together kind of the greatest hits of Rome. So you have Trajan's Column right next to the Colosseum. And this would have been a bit of a painted tour for Henrietta. She never got to go on the grand tour. That was something that was reserved for gentlemen in the most part. But these paintings that she commissioned, especially for her great room, showed off her erudition, her intellect and her taste in art. Any pictures of Henrietta herself? Yes, at Marble Hill, we have two portraits of Henrietta, which are both very important. The first one that you come to in the house is downstairs in the hall, and that shows her in around 1724. It's by the artist Charles Jervis. And so this is at the time that Megan was talking about when the initial designs for Marble Hill are underway. And it was commissioned, actually, by her friend Alexander Pope, who similarly lived nearby. But this portrait, by 1784, it was actually hanging at Strawberry Hill, and that's the home of Horace Walpole. So this portrait passes through the hands of various of her friends and eventually was acquired by English Heritage. So it's really nice to have something with this amazing provenance and story behind it. Mm. Um, And Henrietta is in a pink silk dress in this one, and she's sort of sitting in an imagined rocky landscape, quite Arcadian, sort of pensive pose, and brooding kind of on a rocky hillside, essentially. I see. What other key items were on display that were part of her life at the house? There are some really important pieces of furniture. um, And the one that I want to talk about first is the peacock table. Uh, Well, we call it the peacock table. It's a, a console or a side table in the great room. And unsurprisingly, we call it the peacock table because it has a huge carved peacock on the front side of it. Originally, there would have been four of these tables in the great room, but only one actually survives today. And it's topped with Carrara marble. And these were made um, around 1730 for Marble Hill. So this table that has managed to survive out of the one out of four was actually removed from Marble Hill by one of the later tenants of the house, a man called Charles Tolk. And it was actually in the 1980s that it was rediscovered in Australia. It was probably taken there by Tolk's descendants and brought back to Marble Hill. Because we only have one, and the whole thing about Palladian interiors is that they should be symmetrical, 
we decided during the project that we would recreate one and make a replica peacock table. And we also decided to restore the original table. So again, it had some 20th century gilding. We did the paint analysis and discovered that much like the walls in the great room, it would have been a stone color. So we've put it back to that original stone color. And now the two of them sit side by side symmetrically. Ah, interesting. So when visitors come in, are they then sort of asked, which one is the new one? (laughs) Um, I think that's going to be a great game that people can play. And if you look really, really closely, you'll be able to figure it out. But it's a good test of your spot the difference skills. Yes. Um, I think it's a fun game. That's a good one for the parents and children, isn't it? Mm, Yes, definitely. How similar were the interiors that visitors will see today compared to Henrietta's time? Is the property being sort of presented in a way that is pure Henrietta or are, are there a few sort of additions that didn't belong to her but form part of the time period? So I think the short answer is very close to how it would have appeared in Henrietta's time or certainly as close as the historical evidence that we have allows us to get. But it's not identical and that's really because Although Henrietta intended the contents of her house to remain inside it for her heirs to enjoy, and she included this clause in her will, she evidently felt very strongly about it, the contents had sadly been dispersed and sold off by the time Marble Hill was open to the public in 1903. So in the intervening years of the 20th century, previous generations of Marble Hill's guardians have tried to rebuild the collection in a variety of ways. And that's mainly been done through using the inventories of Marble Hill. So when Henrietta died in 1767, a quite comprehensive inventory of the house was drawn up just four days after she died. And we have used this earliest known inventory to try and acquire similar objects, similar furniture, similar paintings, similar textiles and decorative arts. And so that's how the kind of collection has been brought together. So it gives you a really strong idea of the kind of home that Henrietta would have created, but it's actually only seven objects. Most of those I've already mentioned, the five Panini paintings, the peacock table, and also a Chinese lacquer screen in the great room that have been repatriated to Marble Hill and form part of her original collection. Right. What are some of the other important improvements that have been made to the inside of the house? One of the interesting projects that we've done during the revived project is to recreate Miss Hotham's bedchamber. So Miss Hotham was Henrietta's great niece. Her name was also Henrietta, so we call her Miss Hotham to differentiate our different Henriettas. So Henrietta Hotham came to Marble Hill when she was about 10 years old and she had her own bedroom right next to her great aunt. She actually called Henrietta her old aunt which I'm not sure that Henrietta would have appreciated that much. (laughs) But uh, we've recreated her bedroom. So we have painted the walls a kind of historically accurate peach blossom colour. And we have created an 18th century bed with needlepoint bed hangings. So it has this kind of simple curling design of flowers and foliage. And that's based on the inventories, but also the fact that Miss Hotham was keen on embroidery herself. And we know that she embroidered a fire screen that she gave to Horace Walpole. So we've incorporated all of these elements in recreating Miss Hotham's bedchamber. And then I suppose one of the other important things that we've done was repainting the exterior of the house in this lead white colour so that it really stands out around the lush green of the surrounding garden. Yes, almost becomes like a beacon, doesn't it? Mm, Draws you in. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's talk now about those gardens with Emily Parker, our landscape advisor. We'll talk about the garden that forms part of this Marble Hill estate. Emily, how much land did Henrietta Howard have when she was resident at the property? To start with, Henrietta only managed to get hold of a very small parcel of land, which didn't even lead down to the river, so it was very small and contained around where she built her house. However, over her lifetime, she managed to slowly buy, and in some cases lease, land until she owned about 66 acres. And that sort of estate that she built is sort of exactly the same land as in the current public park. So you're very much standing in the estate that Henrietta would have seen in her time. Ah, very interesting. So she effectively managed to acquire the lands that would give her that beautiful view of the River Thames from one of those south-facing bedrooms. Yeah, so she had that view and it was very much sort of 
agricultural land. There wasn't anything built in the way per se when she owned the first bit of land, but she eventually managed to lease areas down to the river and she planted trees and extended her garden into them. It's always nice to know that what you're looking at is what you own. Mm, yes. <laughs> I suppose if you're a lady of her ilk. What did the garden look like then in her time? So, for example, if you could describe to us what it might look like uh, if we were looking at it on a map. Yeah, so immediately to the east of the house, there was an orchard. And immediately to the west of the house, there was sort of a grove of trees in quite a formal pattern. And within that area, there was an ice house, which would have kept ice for keeping things cool in the kitchens. And then in front of the house, on the other side of sort of a gravel terrace path, there's an oval shaped lawn which is surrounded by a walk which was planted with trees to form a kind of enclosed tunnel or sort of arbour, which you could then walk around on a gravel path. And then on the east of this, there was a flower garden, which was set within a wilderness, which I mean as in an area planted with shrubs and trees. So it's got these kind of wiggly paths through it. Below this, there was another sort of wilderness area, which had a grotto in it, which was beautifully decorated with shells and coral and glass. And then... On the west side of the garden, sort of further down the garden, there was a nine-pin bowling alley. And then running down from here, there was a large expanse of lawn leading to the river with avenues of trees and groves on each side. And we're really fortunate to have a plan of the garden from a survey taken in the late 1740s. So that gives us this fantastic record of what the garden would have looked like. We appreciate that. That's really useful. It sounds like if you were a child, you'd really enjoy running around and parents would just allow you to just go off and have adventures yeah sounds, definitely i think those like kind of place. wiggly paths in the wilderness are always quite appealing to children aren't they so you can sort of run around and enjoy yes those. and there's a lot of different sort of colors as well and different tree heights and textures and vistas yeah so it's a lot about so there's a lot about views so that view down to the river but then there's also these kind of very much enclosed areas which feel kind of secret and have these different textures and this different woodland and the different planting so it's almost kind of an escape within those kind of very broad areas of grass. So what was this style of garden then that you're describing? It, has it got a name? It's very interesting because it's created at a time of sort of great change in garden design. And it was planned at the very forefront of these new ideas. And as sort of Megan and Tessa have been saying, it reflects this 18th century fascination with villas of the ancients. So this is the idea of these ideas being understood through reading classical texts and accounts of Roman villas. And the idea was to link the house and garden together through this sort of classical style. So essentially, they feel like they're making a appropriate ancient garden to go with the ancient sort of architecture of the house. So it's the idea of bringing this villa landscape of ancient Rome to Twickenham on the Thames to create this kind of very Arcadian landscape, which is very pioneering and new at the time. The best example of a sort of contemporary garden in the same style is Chiswick, which is obviously another one that's linked to English heritage. So it's got this interesting sort of idea that they've both been worked on at sort of similar times with a similar style. So who helped Henrietta Howard design the garden for Marble Hill? As Megan was saying, a lot of these sort of decisions about design were taking place in the middle of sort of fashionable cultural circles. And she was very much in the centre of people who were talking about garden design. And she would have consulted with lots of her friends and she would have been influenced by gardens that she'd seen and people that she talked to about gardens. But we do know that Alexander Pope, the poet and the close friend of Henrietta, was heavily involved in the initial plans and even drew a plan for her, which survives, which shows what his initial thoughts were for the garden. So Pope also met with Charles Bridgman and Henrietta, Pope and Bridgman met together on site in 1724. And he was a fashionable landscape designer who had later become the royal gardener. And they discussed together what the design for the garden would look like. And so it looks like it's a bit of Henrietta, perhaps a little bit of Pope, a little bit of Bridgman's professional advice and stylistic influence, which can be seen in that sort of final design. So it's kind of a combination of ideas and accumulation of like what Henrietta wanted combined with some advice from her friends and also from professionals bringing together this ultimate design that you can see in the landscape that we have surveyed in 1740s. Megan mentioned that uh, the house itself took about six years to finish. How long did the garden take to completely realise? Well, we know that the garden was started being built in the 1720s, so at the same time as the house. 
as we have records of trees being planted then and we know that um, builders are being paid for the garden buildings that were being built at this time. However, we also know that some elements of the garden were still being added to throughout Henrietta's lifetime, such as the grotto, which is thought to have been first created in the 1730s, but was still being added to in the 1760s. So as in the house, things change and develop over time. But we think that that initial sort of surge of gardening was being done in the 1720s and 1730s to get it ready for when Henrietta moves in. Now, in terms of getting ready the property for visitors, I suppose they're all listening now to this podcast thinking, right, how much of what Emily has just been describing is actually going to be available for us to enjoy when we arrive at Marble Hill? So can you describe what the gardens look like now versus what they looked like uh, in Henrietta's time? Yeah, so following a lot of research and archaeological investigations and using that survey that I've mentioned from the 1740s, a lot of the garden, which I described earlier, has been restored for visitors to enjoy today. The wilderness areas and the groves have been replanted, as well as the orchard and the flower garden, providing lots of different spaces to relax and enjoy today. And around the grotto, we've kind of completely re-landscaped that area, making it go back to its original levels and what was planted there, creating a beautiful descent down to the grotto. One of the things that you would expect if you're a family going to an English heritage property is some sort of play area for children to run around in and have fun. So is that a modern addition that we can see at Henrietta's house and garden? So there's lots of things for families to do at uh, Marble Hill today. So we do have a play area. So next to the cafe, we've installed a new play area, which is lovely. It's got really nice sort of fun things to sort of climb on and bounce on. It's got like little trampoline and things. It's a really nice space. And we've also, in the garden itself, managed to really think about what our family visitors might like. So, for example, in the Nine Pin Alley, we'll have balls and pins on offer. So visitors can actually play Nine Pins where Henrietta Howard would have done. And we'll also have other games available. So a popular 18th century game, which is called Battledore and Shuttlecock, which is a bit like modern day badminton. And these will be available from a sort of replica gardener's cart, which will also have other hands-on activities for families. And then the other thing that we will have both in the house and in the garden is a new family trail for families to sort of get more involved in what Marble Hill is about and learn a bit more about Marble Hill together. We've described a lot about how the house and gardens have been refreshed and replenished for visitors in the 21st century to enjoy this fantastic story of Henrietta Howard and her dream home of Marble Hill. How is this story being told? We're telling it through lots of different ways, both in the house and in the garden. In the house, you can walk in and immerse yourself in Henrietta's story in a new welcome exhibition filled with beautiful illustration, a video which gives you some of that background and those key moments in her life before stepping into Henrietta's home. And as Tessa's said, we've really worked hard to make it feel like you're sort of walking into her home, into her life. And as you walk around, you can discover lots of different stories. You can read about them, but you can also engage with new furnishings where you can play cards at a table in the hall whilst discovering about who her neighbours were. Or you can put on a hat in Miss Hotham's bedchamber to imagine what it would have been like as a child there in the 18th century. And again, through the gardens, there'll be moments to stop and discover more about how they were created and about Henrietta's time there with, again, beautiful illustrations, sort of reimagining moments in Henrietta's life as she sat and dined on the lawn or enjoyed paying those nine pins. So there's going to be so many different ways to immerse yourself in the sounds and the smells and the sights of Marble Hill during Henrietta's lifetime. And the house is open to visitors more frequently, I gather, now. Previously, I think that some of the opening hours were limited? Yes, before the uh, new project the house was only open by pre-booked tour and now it's going to be open for free five days a week so we are really opening up Marble Hill. That's fantastic and you can I think get to enjoy the property just as Henrietta would, you can almost treat it like um, your second home or something, somewhere to just go and relax and enjoy the views, enjoy the scenery enjoy the gardens, enjoy the history and enjoy a cup of tea as well. Yes, definitely. We'll be encouraging people to visit the stable cafe, to also spend time in the garden playing the same games that Henrietta would have played and then coming into her house to see how she would have lived. 
So following on from this completion of this five-year project, what aspects of Marble Hill are you most excited to be sharing with visitors? I think what I'm most excited about is the fact that before this project, that Marble Hill felt the house felt very disconnected to the landscape. And I feel that this project, by creating this sort of very beautiful garden, has managed to bring the sort of landscape and house back together and make it a sort of a much more enjoyable and longer experience for visitors, as well as for the people who just want to walk through our beautiful park today. So it's bringing those two things back together and creating a lovely garden for all of our visitors to enjoy. Tessa, what do you think? You're key on the interiors, I know. Yes. So I'm really excited to see how people react to walking into the great room and seeing it repainted, transformed. And also I'm excited to see people sit down at the dressing table in Miss Hotham's and see how they take to this new furniture, which is really historically in keeping, but allows you to also get hands on. And Megan, what do you think Marble Hill is offering to new visitors? Well, as you can probably guess, I'm quite enamoured with Henrietta and her story. So I am really excited to really see how visitors engage all those different aspects of her life and sort of almost feel her presence there through the sounds that we're playing in some of the rooms. We've got snippets of conversation you can capture or imagining her sitting sort of writing letters or things like that and sort of really gaining a sense of what was really a fascinating woman in the period. It's such a privilege to interpret and tell the story of a site with such an impressive and important woman at the fore. I gather that we don't know exactly from the records the total cost of the house, Marble Hill and the gardens. But what we can probably conclude is that a significant amount of money was spent in order to make this passion project of Henrietta Howard's a reality. And I think with the passing of time, you suddenly realise that actually this is a place that Henrietta wanted people to enjoy. Her visitors, her guests, her extended family. And that's been passed on now to the nation. And I think it's something quite nice to think about that despite all the costs that was put into this, we get to enjoy it for free. And I think that's quite an important point, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. And I think we're very lucky to have had the National Lottery Heritage Fund funding this restoration project as well. And I think that's part of the reason why we're able to open it for free for visitors today. So it'll be a lovely thing to be able to visit and to, for everyone to enjoy it as part of that. And it does have a rich history as well, doesn't it, Megan? That's part of the richness of the experience. Absolutely. And I mean, the history doesn't stop at Henrietta. It um, has a fascinating history beyond that. And a fascinating history, I think, is as a retreat from London, from whatever's going on in the world. It was a retreat for Henrietta. And I think it really still provides that today, a retreat, a place for leisure, or a place to absorb culture and to really get away from the world. And I'm so excited that we're still able to share that. And I kind of think that Henrietta, in some ways, would like to know that you know, what she built is still being valued today, that it still has this legacy and speaks to people today. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're in the 20th century, learning about the people who discovered Corbridge Roman Town near Hadrian's Wall. They were just so surprised, I think, when they started excavating and realised the level of the preservation and the standard of the architecture that they were discovering. Thanks for listening. See you next time.